Hello. In her debut novel, The Best We Could Do, Vietnamese author T. Bui postulates that proximity and closeness are not the same. While she penned this in considerably different circumstances, and I won't spoil the book for potential readers by revealing what hers were, the expression came to mind recently when I was invited to write a piece for a magazine on the subject of our great river highways. These venerable arteries of communication predate our railways and motorways by thousands of years, and, although no longer asserting influence as they once did, still play their part in our lives. Perhaps, hush my mouth, we're so accustomed to them that we take them for granted. Until, that is, one hot summer may agitate us into fears of housepipe bans and abstraction restrictions as we peer skywards for signs of replenishing rain. Whereupon serenity and inevitably complacency resume. Our rivers are facing challenges that will doubtless provide me with ammunition for thought on other occasions. But for now, and minded of T. Bowie's words, I compare and contrast just two of these great river highways in an association that is not quite so arbitrary as may first appear. George Henry Borrow, 1803 to 1881, stands judgment with anyone of his generation in being a quite remarkable man. Born in Norfolk, the son of an army recruiting officer and a farmer's daughter, he studied law until languages and literature consumed him and thereafter he wrote novels and travelogues based on his experiences of meandering around Europe. In 1825 he undertook his first such journey and over the ensuing years visited Portugal, Spain, Morocco and Russia. He married in 1840, but continued to travel. However, it was after a family holiday in Thlangothlin in 1854 that he focused on Wales. He explored the country extensively, alone and on foot, and his book, Wild Wales, Its People, Language and Scenery, was published in 1862. Although not a popular seller at its launch, it has come to be regarded as a contemporary social and geographical history that has been described as robust, dramatic and cheerful, with its author an agreeably eccentric, larger-than-life, jovial man whose laughter rings throughout the book. Barrow makes much of his self-taught ability to speak Welsh, and in attempting the same feat myself, learning Welsh, my respect for his linguistic skills is considerable. <laughs> But back to his travels through Wales, and in particular, his explorations around the Cambrian Mountains to the peaks of Plinlimmon, which he confirms as the third in Wales for altitude, being inferior only to Snowdon and Cader Idris. At the highest point of Plinlimmon, about 2,500 feet above sea level, he cautions, if you climb here alone and break a leg, you may die before they find you. From this bleak, inhospitable landscape, he notes... A little pool of water some 25 inches long, 6 inches wide and about 3 feet deep. It is covered at the bottom with small stones from between which the water gushes up. Barrow is describing what he believes to be the source of the River Severn, for centuries the preeminent river navigation of the UK. Swelling as it collects water from tributaries on its rapid descent towards Kersus, the infant Severn, known locally as Hafren, heads northwards towards Shrewsbury and once emptied into the Diestuary until the retreat of glaciers at the end of the last ice age around 10,000 years ago dammed its course to form Lake Lapworth, named after the geologist who discovered it. 
The lake burst its banks and the water gushed southwards in an arc around Shrewsbury, thence carving its way via Ironbridge Gorge, Bridgenorth, Bewdley, Starport, Worcester, Gloucester, the Bristol Channel and the Celtic Sea to journey's end where it melds into the Atlantic. On its travels, the Severn is swelled with water from numerous tributaries, not least the River Stour, which rises in Clent and was once pivotal in the development of black country industries before it succumbs to the Severn at Stour Port. The Severn, a mighty river for sure. 220 miles that vary from wild and untamed with a rich diversity of flora and fauna to a bustling trade route that boasts the second highest tidal range in the world, beaten only by the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia. Although purists may point to the latest satellite information, suggesting the latter's claim may not be entirely justified. Meanwhile, back on Plinlimon, a pool little more than a boggy patch denotes the source of the infant river Y. Its Latin name, Varga, which means wandering, is appropriate. Over the course of 156 miles, as measured by the Environment Agency, and forming the Welsh-English border for part of that length, it wanders through or past towns and villages, including Rayada, Boothwells, Hay-on-Wye. It passes the barn where I'm looking upon it right now, then to Hedeford, Ross-on-Wye, Simmonsyat, Monmouth and Tinton, until it intrudes into the Severn, just below the fortress town of Chepstow. Now, like the Severn, the Wye has a transport heritage and was navigable to Glazebury, five miles upstream of Hay, albeit the tough and dangerous trade along it and its major tributary, the River Lug, ceased over a century and a half ago, with navigational artefacts such as locks largely removed in the interim. It too was industrialised in parts. In April 2009, Herefordshire Archaeology excavated the 17th century site of New Weir Ironworks at Simmonsyat and discovered water-powered slitting and rolling mills. Naturally, both rivers share a degree of common currency, but go much beyond here and the similarities become harder to reconcile. Quintessentially since, unlike its larger sibling, the wine never wholly gifted its innocence. The Y is variously a site of special scientific interest, a special area of conservation, and in the reach between Mordiford and Chepstow, an area of outstanding natural beauty that is regarded as one of the finest lowland landscapes in Britain. Nowadays, larger craft cannot penetrate much below the few miles to Tinton before bottoming out, and water-based activity further upstream is mostly restricted to canoeing, rowing and angling. In comparison, the Severn, though hardly devoid of wildlife and home to the internationally recognised Slimbridge Wetland Centre, is still routinely navigable to Stourport, with an ancient right of navigation extant to Pool Quay near Welshpool. Whilst the Severn is no laggard in the angling snakes, the Wye is easily one of the best salmon rivers in the UK, yielding specimens of over 50 pounds. It's not only salmon. In a display case over the door of the inn right opposite the barn lies a 22-pound 9-ounce pike caught locally in 1946. Not a record, but sufficient to impress. So, two rivers carving entirely differing courses and with individualistic pedigrees, yet ultimately conjoining in the Bristol Channel. Thus, I revert to the premise, the proximity and closeness are not the same. Spiritually or existentially, the Severn and the Wye could hardly be considered close. Yet their proximity 
is beyond dispute. They rise on the same barren peaks of Plinlimmon, a mere trek of a few minutes apart. So close in origins, yet so disparate, their paths diverging without reconciliation, save for their meeting once more at their denouement, their fates dictated simply by an accident of birth that places their sources on opposing sides of a watershed. Hence the seven falling one way, the Y and the infant river Rydal to the other, and the irony of our saga, indeed the heresy if it is to be believed, is that despite being aided by a local guide, Borrow may have identified the wrong seven spring, having been confused by several pools nearby. Equally intriguing, in his charming book of 1968, Portrait of the Seven, author J.H.B. Peel proffers some doubt as to whether Borrow ever saw it at all. It's a matter for geologists, Peel records. I am content to know that somewhere near to this very place, the Seven does rise and shine. Enjoy your black country, and do join me again soon for more tales from the barn.